it is deeply instilled by evolution into the wiring of our brains, not to mention embedded in all of our cultural institutions that we seek security and meaning by producing, achieving, and accumulating. This default setting, this ethos, in a nutshell, is known as work and shop until you drop, an approach to living that lands us in what has been variously referred to as the rat race, the hedonic treadmill, the daily grind, drudgery, survival of the fittest, and the battle of life. Given the nature of these summaries, is it any surprise that the Buddha noted in his first noble truth that life, as it's commonly lived, is often stressful? We're set up to be enthralled by the rich neural, neural rewards of cheesy slices of pizza, yet we seldom recall the gastric discomforts that may soon follow. We may feel magnetically drawn into the Apple Store, hypnotized by the array of shiny, beautiful, thin, light gizmos, but the possibility of buyer's remorse rarely comes to mind. A pair of jeans might look perfect in the store mirror, and indeed they still do now. <laughs> but back at home, similar pairs have been relegated to the darkest niches of the closet. <laughs> there are many... I'm not supposed to smile at my own writing. That's really <laughs> not humble at all. Um, there are many reasons that peace of mind and security cannot be purchased. First off, the brain tends to prefer and reward novelty. New stuff. While we habituate quickly to the familiar, uh, Louis C.K. has a well-known routine about passengers on commercial airline flights complaining when the Wi-Fi drops out, <laughs> which means they are taking for granted the experience of hurtling 500 miles per hour, 30,000 feet above the earth in tin cans, crossing continents in a matter of a few hours. This is the sad truth of all the goods, objects, services, and so-called progress. Nothing enlivens us for very long. Secondly, the jolt of dopamine that underlines, and it wouldn't be a talk by me if I didn't bring in dopamine, that underlines the bulk of our thrills, security, and perks is ever fleeting. Whether it arises from intriguing Tinder matches, a popular post on Facebook, a step up in one's career, or the perfect pair of shoes found on clearance sales, dopamine makes us feel invulnerable and brilliant, but only for 20 minutes. Before it wears off and we're back to neurotically trudging through the routines and responsibilities of daily life. Okay, I'm talking about myself here as well. Thirdly, the compulsion to achieve and acquire is invariably an attempt to bypass feelings of emotional distress. We're sold a delusion that somewhere out there in those glassy modernist towers that line the river, there are people living without ever experiencing old age, indigestion, love handles, or spiritual malaise. <laughs> The beautiful people live completely free of aches and pains. If only we could find the perfect job to buy the perfect roomy condo in one of those buildings with spectacular river views, living rooms with home theaters and surround sound speakers, 
closets crammed with fabulous clothes, and oh, the parties we'd throw, attracting the most interesting people who would laugh appreciatively at all of our jokes, and life would be just perfect. In reality, that li- in the reality that lies beneath the matrix-like fantasies promoted by marketing and advertising boiled down to a Sisyphean travail where day in and day out happiness is pushed a little further down the line, just out of our reach, while this very moment, the present, which is the only time will ever be able to achieve peace of mind, is portrayed as lacking, missing something. When we accept the underlying ethos that we're born incomplete and have to continually accomplish and achieve to be worthy of love and happiness, then we are condemned to striving and surviving, not thriving. Life becomes a matter of getting through this moment, then another moment, hoping that sometime in a distant future, a suitable moment will occur when we can really relax and enjoy life. It's akin to a highway where signs promise that a rest stop is always a little further down the road. We only get to stop when we finally run out of gas. Perhaps... Once we're alienated from the consumerist lifestyle, we might try to locate alternative sources of happiness in accumulating it through other means. For example, we may try to amass wisdom via self-help books or the flood of advice found on the Internet, propelled by the belief that profound (coughs) spiritual insights can be attained in wise-sounding thought. But filling the mind with ideas is often just another form of consumerism. No matter how many books we read, real wisdom is the result of sustained inquiry inquiry to direct experience. It's a result of kindness and generosity and gratitude and meditation and self-care. Peace of mind is not hidden amidst obscure ideas. In fact, it's available whenever you want it in Buddhist practice. Another existential dead end is the hope that lasting satisfaction can be found in filling one's days with an endless array of exciting experiences. Yes, visiting remote religious shrines in India, taking ayahuasca with Ecuadorian shamans, or dancing the night away at Burning Man amidst beatifically smiling yogis, may provide wonderful states of consciousness and notable sensory events, but if it disappears when you return to Williamsburg or Greenpoint (laughs) or wherever we live, if it's not available unconditionally, then it's not the answer. Journeying after new experiences can be enriching, but we're in for a big letdown if it's where we're hoping serenity is lurking. The answer to life's ingrained anxieties and insecurities must be unconditionally available, no matter when, where you look for it. Eventually, if we're lucky, we experience a profound disappointment, and that's if we're lucky. In life, the way it's commonly lived, we become disappointed 
in trying to acquire and accumulate peace of mind or security. This discouragement, Nibida in the Buddha's time, is actually magnificent for it is the fuel of true spiritual practice. Given all the aforementioned dead ends, we are fortunate that some 2,500 years ago, the Buddha located three sources of security and unconditional peace of mind, each of which we can rely on in any situation to provide comfort and direction. The key lies in understanding that meaningful change begins when we learn to investigate experience rather than immediately trying to change it or resist it. Instead of trying to control others, we yearn to understand and connect with them. Rather than repressing anger or fear, we endeavor to hold, nurture, and heal our emotional wounds. So, the first refuge is taking refuge in spiritual practice, or the Buddha. If we abandon the shopping carts in the aisles and remove ourselves from the rat race, of bargain hunters, we can contemplate being in and of itself, becoming aware of what is left when we put aside the delusions that true peace isn't available right here and now. We are not broken, so let's liberate ourselves from the regime of self-improvement in favor of opening to the vast wonders already available to us within our rich inner landscape. Being alive is an amazing experience filled with interwoven processes of breathing and movements that are all too easy to overlook. In meditation, we lie down not to sleep, nor do we walk to get anywhere. We lie down, sit, stand, or walk simply to investigate those states for the depth, beauty, and wisdom they contain. Having a human brain gives us more processing power than all of the world's computers combined. We have capabilities more astonishing than traveling the entire universe when we explore the inner resources of our mind. Breathing in and out itself is astonishing when we observe it with enough persistence. Under close inspection, each inhalation and exhalation are different than those which came before or will come after. Despite having the pains and losses felt by all beings, we can actually learn to enjoy the ceaseless parade of perceptions, feelings, moods, and thoughts if we rest in a seat of non-reactive awareness. So this is finding refuge in practice, or the Buddha. The name of the Buddha actually doesn't mean anything other than awakening, becoming alert and aware. So that's the first refuge. The second refuge is taking refuge in spiritual wisdom. Most of us, with the possible exception of diehard Trump supporters, understand (laughs) that despite appearances, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Yet many individuals, such as Galileo, suffered for politely suggesting that what appears natural and true isn't always valid. Glass is actually a liquid. I still don't believe that. (laughs) The moon doesn't get any larger. 
Our minds simply make it appear that way when it gets closer to the horizon. And our thoughts do not lie at the epicenter of the mind controlling all of our actions, making all of our choices. This is no more true than the belief that the universe revolves around the earth. Thoughts are actually the product of the brain's slowest wiring. They arise well after impulses have appeared, in the briefest intervals before we act out on our compulsions. Thoughts can only play a few roles. They either, one, put the brakes on harmful ideas before we act them out, two, they can describe our experience to others, or three, they can simply go along for the ride, providing rationalizations and justifications for even the worst impulses. The more we're lost in thought, the more likely it is we'll blindly follow our ingrained habits. <clears throat> to transcend our settings, we need to discern which intentions are healthy and which cause suffering. It's hard to become aware of our true motivations while we're hypnotized by our constant inner chatter. At this point, I'm going to uh, briefly read something from uh, a great writer, David Foster Wallace, who a couple of years before he died gave a commencement address of Kenyon, which is now a pretty familiar piece of writing, but it's worth bringing in because I think in far more beautiful language he conveys what I'm trying to discuss here with uh, taking refuge in the Dharma. This is David Foster Wallace. In quotes, Let's say it's an average day. You work hard for eight or ten hours, and at the end you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want to do is go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for a while, and then hit the sack early because you have to get up the next day and do it all over again. But then you remember there's no food at home, and getting to the store in rush hour takes way longer than it should, and when you finally get there, the supermarket is crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. The store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing corporate pop. <laughs> and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you just can't get in and out quickly. You have to wander all over a huge overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver a junky cart around other tired, hurried, harried people, I believe he meant, with carts. And when you get all your supper supplies, there aren't enough checkout lanes, so the line is long, which is stupid and infuriating. <laughs> but you can't take your, your frustration out on the frantic lady working behind the register who is overworked at a job. <laughs> whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses your imagination. <laughs> and as you pay for your food, you get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death itself. <laughs> <laughs> the, the end of the day traffic is made, of, of, made up of huge lane-blocking SUVs, Hummers, and V12 pickup trucks burning wasteful 40-gallon tanks of gas, and the patriotic bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles, driven by the most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. 
By the way, this is examples of not, how not to think, but he's, I, he, I love it. Anyway, uh, in these traffic jams and long checkout lines, I have time to think, and if I don't make a conscious decision about what to pay attention to, I'm going to be miserable every time I have to shop, because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to get home. And everybody else is just in the way. And who are these people anyway? Look at how stupid and cow-like and non-human they seem. <laughs> how deeply personally unfair life is. Thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It's our natural default setting. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these situations. I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have harder, more tedious, and more painful lives than I do. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is, and you are operating, then you are operating in your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider the possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. So that's the role of the Dharma, to get us out of those default settings so that we can really see life from a different perspective other than the self-centered, everyone else is in our way, and not getting what we want means that we can't be happy. Finally, I take refuge in the Sangha. It should be noted that true refuge doesn't come entirely from inner resources. Meaningful, secure, empathetic connection to others is an absolute requisite for developing any regulation of our emotions, despite the feelings of uniqueness and separation we all hold. In the reassuring glance of another spiritual practitioner, Received as I disclose the most challenging emotions, I locate a bond and care that heals even the deepest wounds. As the Buddha taught, I do not see any quality by which the skillful arises and the unskillful subsides than friendship with admirable people. I learn what is beautiful in the beginning, the middle, and the end, surpassingly pure. The spiritual life is one of mutual dependence, for together and only together we cross over the flood of ignorance. Connecting with others is the most challenging of the refuges, for it requires a risk even greater than sitting and observing the inner horror shows and ludicrous fantasies the mind can create. In opening our hearts to others, we risk once again being deserted and shunned which is what we fear the most. But there's no alternative. Openness and honesty are the foundations of trust. And so resilience, even if it's born of the desperation of loneliness, is key. We can develop this skill incrementally, taking calculated risks in each of our spiritual community. It's worth taking the plunge. So those are the three refuges. And then finally, a little explanation of the precepts. In entering the spiritual journey, it's not enough to commit ourselves to the destination we have to seal the deal, as it were, by renouncing actions that sabotage our pilgrimage. 
loading me down with heavy baggage of guilt, shame, and unworthiness. The refuges are based on the belief, are not based on the belief that we should be, that are found in theistic spiritual paths. They're very different. In our spiritual transformation, we will make mistakes, we will make errors, but there's no room for self-judgment or self-punishment. The process is simply one of learning from mistakes and returning to practice with renewed conviction. We're on a journey that requires forgiveness of others and for self. As the Buddha assures us in the wonderful Kalama Sutta, there is no, if there's no life after this one, no rebirth, then at the very least, by refraining from harm, harmfulness in this life, we will live with ease, our minds clear of the agitation born of hostility, animosity, and free from all the trouble harmful actions bring. What a wonderful promise, ease and freedom, a state more comforting than anything purchased or consumed. It is indeed the only game in town. <laughs>